Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. My name's Catherine Carr, and this is Season 2 of Relatively, the podcast all about potentially the longest relationship. Today, we're talking to Emma Spearing. I am the eldest of um, three girls. Emma is an actor, theatre maker, and a twin. So I'm two minutes older than my sister, but we were actually born by caesarean, so it, it there's a chance that actually I wouldn't have been the eldest, but I was always labelled as the eldest. This is the second of two episodes of Relatively about grief and siblings. I find that quite challenging to still say that I'm a twin because people immediately ask, oh, where is she (laughs) and what's she doing? Emma's one-woman play called Whole is about the reality of losing a sibling and it's amazing. She talks to me about it and why she wrote it, about the reality of death and why it's not like it is in the films, and where she's found specific support for twins who are now alone. But she started by describing a relationship in which Charlie, her twin, was Batman and she was Robin. She was the one that she played the guitar um, in a room, you know, all the people, everyone would swarm around her and sing with her and I was happier making the tea for everybody and coming in and having little conversations and singing. You know, I describe our relationship like Batman and Robin and I'm, I'm, I'm the sidekick, you know, I'm the one that, you know, she, she can't necessarily do it without me, but I'm not, I'm not the most important one in that relationship. And, and I was looking at how, how can I explain this relationship? And it's like, if you have been part of a, a double act with somebody and then half of that double act dies what the hell are you how can you be at the sidekick how can you be robin without batman what does that look like mm. yeah and so my journey now is about what does it mean to be by myself and to how do i grow into who i actually never really grew into because i was always in a relationship with somebody i guess in a way it's about not being complete without that other person there and trying to learn how to live a life that is sort of entangled with somebody. Um, Mm. So, yeah, it's very complicated. (laughs) It is complicated. And I really appreciate you thinking it through with me. I know it's something that you've done for your play, but I wonder Mm. what was your sense of being complete and in a partnership when you were really little? So the research sort of suggests that some twins, especially identical twins, they don't even form their own 
egos. You're not necessarily an individual. You're never seen as an individual. And for instance, the language around twins, you know, just reinforces that. You know, people say, oh, the twins did this. Oh, yeah, remember when the twins did that? You know, you're referred to as the twins or you're referred to as twin or twinny because no one can remember which one you are. Um, so all your life experiences, all your memories, everything become merged with another person. And likewise, you know, if she did something naughty, she wasn't particularly naughty, but if she did, we would both be blamed. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> things were things were reflected off each other. So for instance, she was quite, when we were teenagers, she was quite sort of strict about, you know, you can't wear that, you can't possibly go out and wear that. Because they might think it's me <laughs> and uh, and that's really uncool and I wouldn't possibly I you know I'd never be seen dead in that so you start to really mold yourself around somebody even when we did school plays together we we were cast as the same character a lot of the time so you would literally be understudying for each other no we we shared a part we shared okay. a part yeah yeah and that, and that sort of thing happened it happened quite a lot really um as you grow up, I guess you're trying to form some individu individuality, I can never say that word. It's like two trees growing together and you're trying to avoid each other's light. Um, so you're not over, you know, shading each other. So you're trying to go off in maybe different directions, but actually our paths are really similar and our belief systems are really similar and our, our joys and the things that we love, like singing and, you know, acting and and exploring and, and, and adventure. We, we both sort of went on very similar journeys, really, um, through our lives. And And that said, there was a point at which her adventurousness took her abroad and a little bit away from you. That's right, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So when we left university and she went to Lancaster and I went to Southampton, so really different parts of the country. And we both decided we want to go traveling. And actually, she ended up she ended up randomly in Poland. Well, it wasn't really <laughs> random. She, she was doing this. We, you know, we'd read this this book that was all about sort of following the signs of, of life and stuff. And we're like, yeah, let's live like this. And and she'd done a teach English as a foreign language course. And so she goes off to Poland. I go off to Asia and she's miserable. And I was in Thailand and I just said, come, just come out here. It's the most beautiful place I've ever been. And she flew out two weeks later and joined me. Yeah. And then I was going up to Laos and I was like, I think you just need to go and chill out on a beach. Um, and there was I was staying in this really cool guest house where people drew you a map to find it because it was sort of hidden and it was sort of word of mouth in Bangkok and there was really great people living there. So she went off with them and I went to Laos and I met her back there sort of two or three weeks later and she came back and she just went, I'm going to India. I've met this amazing woman who's on this spiritual path. I'm going to go to Varanasi and I was horrified because I was like, oh my God, it's really full on over there, right? I hadn't been there yet. And I was like, it's really, you know, um, are you sure? Actually, that was sort of where she found her soul in India and she studied Indian singing and we both really got into meditation and got into all these beautiful bhajan songs, sort of devotional songs and sort of discovered a spirituality that, that just never left either of us through that trip she also she met a guy there who lived in a community in southern spain it was a teepee community yeah you know tents and trucks and everything and she went and lived there and she never left um, it sounds magical and mystical and 
very before times when we think about living post corona the idea yeah. of um kids and 20 year olds drifting around like that feels like it belongs to another time to me yeah um but also the fact that you've done all this thinking about the way to live it sounded like you're quite intentional about it and you'd thought about questions of the spirit and the soul and um mm. life's philosophies I guess that might set you apart from not all other twins, but maybe some other twins in that you'd thought deeply about how you were together and what it meant to be part of a pair. Yeah, I think I think I've thought more deeply about it since she's died, to be honest. I think the relationship was so complicated. So it sounds really blissful, but actually, we you know, we had such fights and so many arguments. I mean, we would just be talking to each other and people would think we were having a massive fight. And we were like, no, this is just how we speak to each other because <laughs> there is no boundary. You know, you've got somebody that you share everything with. There is nothing that I wouldn't talk to her about. But that journey, I guess, to spirituality and to, we were always looking for something. We were, maybe, maybe deeply we were looking at belonging and maybe that was because we were twins, you know, we were, mm. we were wanting that deep connection with everybody that we met and we didn't really find it very often. But you find it in those sort of circles where people are doing work on their self and trying to have compassion. I don't know it makes you feel like you belong maybe we're just constantly mm -hmm. looking for connection yeah and, and when you went to visit her in Spain did you feel like that she'd found somewhere where she belonged yeah she was totally loved there I mean you know living in communities isn't, isn't without its difficulties but she 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 formed a choir um <laughs> there and it was just full of funky you know like 30 funky women who just used to go and sing and she taught songs from around the world that was like one of the things that she did she was part of something called the natural voice network which you sort of collect songs and you you then teach by ear all these harmonies I felt like she was really she was really seen you know people really loved her but it was there that she first thought perhaps that she might not be very well that's right isn't it and she told you that she was pregnant at the time with her little girl and she said to me that she could feel this lump on her cervix and yeah I mean <laughs> forgive me if this is too much information but you know I'm, I'm an oversharer but I was like I've got that that's I've got mine checked out it's fine it's just like they're polyps it's not a thing it'll be fine you know but do go and get it checked out and she'd got a doctor to look at it and the doctor basically said that there wasn't anything there and to stop touching it or whatever and mm you know that it's quite horrific that that happened and so she left it and obviously then had her little girl and then you know you, you're down the you're down a dirt track but you're not going to drive all the way up and you know into town when you've got a baby and try and get things sorted if you sort of don't necessarily realize that something something really bad's going on um and so yeah. when did she realize that something bad really was going on she must have gone to hospital and she, I think they took a biopsy of it and and then they phoned her up and said, it's cancer and you've got to come in tomorrow. And she just freaked out. You know, it was, it was on the phone. And I think the thing about Charlie was that she was very, you couldn't push her. She needed to take her time to process things. And she just sort of went, 
up the mountain and stayed with her friends and was like, actually, I'm, I'm going to try and treat this alternatively. I'm going to try and treat this by cutting out all sugar, only having green juice, only doing this, like really, really rigid. And everyone came around her and they all looked after her and they all really supported her. But, you know, she might have had this tumour for maybe a few years, who knows, but it wasn't at a point really where we thought we had time, but she thought she had time to do that. I mean, I was pulling my hair out, but yeah, the trauma of it, you know, you have to let somebody make their own choices about things because all that was happening was I was saying, please come and get, please come and see somebody, come and talk to somebody, just find out how, how you know, what, what needs to be done. And she just didn't want to. And that, that must have been, I'm imagining, that must have been very hard because you've got this person that you totally love and you share everything with and then there's this sort of quite violent divergence, really. One of you's really ill and the other yeah. isn't and the ill person is with, within their rights but making decisions about how they want that illness to be treated and the other half of them, you, is thinking, please do something different to that. <laughs> That's really yeah. hard, I'm imagining, between twins. The thing is that the more I would say something, the more I would alienate her and the more she probably wouldn't want to speak to me. So I remember I I was actually training at the time to be an actor. I was at drama school and she was so proud of me for being there. I just remember doing this performance. I was expecting her to come back to England like the next day and she she didn't. I found out that she'd flown to Brazil to go and see a healer in Rio instead of coming back to um, England and I just remember like banging my fist against the wall and I had really this is like this I just had visions of like just going over there and just grabbing her by the hair and sticking her in a car and getting her on a plane and bringing her back it sounds so violent doesn't it but I was just I was distraught I was distraught by the decision she was making I remember I phoned up Macmillan uh, a helpline and talk to them about it and they were like you know what in this country you might not have treatment for three months so there's no rush like it's okay she can mm. she needs to be able to make these decisions and it's much better if you don't alienate her um mm. but yeah god so hard so hard it turned out you said she thought she had time you thought she had time and even the Macmillan nurses thought she might have had a little bit of grace to, mm. to come to her decisions in her own time but in fact she didn't have perhaps as much time as you all would have desperately wanted her to have. So from Brazil she flew back to this country but when she got here she she actually had a hemorrhage and she ended up in hospital and they couldn't let her go until they shrunk the tumour. She then had some radiotherapy and some chemotherapy so she then did have treatment and mm. they did a scan and they said it hasn't spread and we were, honestly, I can't tell you, I was so relieved. And I was like, okay, I was completely catastrophizing. I need to, she's okay. And then they thought they got it. And um, sort of four or five months later, she started to get some pain. I I trained as a physio, so I was really, I was like, you've got nerve weakness in your leg. You can't walk properly. You've got terrible night pain these are all big red flags and you need to go back and see them and and I even wrote to the consultant actually and I I said this is not there's something wrong and mm. they did a scan and and actually they they missed it 
they they missed it when it oh. came back again. Yeah. Oh, so it had spread, in fact. So it had gone into the lymph and actually, so it was actually compressing one of her nerve roots as it was coming out of her spine, which was really clear, actually, if you if you assessed her, I was like, there is something touching this nerve root, can you look? Um, but then Charlie was amazing and she was like, well, I wanted to treat it alternatively, so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to really completely invest in just, you know, everything, everything. Yeah, and people from the community came over and stayed and lived with us and looked after her um, with me. I cared for her for about six or seven months. Oh, gosh. And it was the most beautiful and the most traumatic, forlorn thing because she didn't want to speak to any doctors. Um, and I, at the time, I, I remember us joking and I was like, I think the doctors, because because you don't want to speak to them, think that I am, I'm controlling you. <laughs> and we were, I was like, I only get a t-shirt with evil twin written on it because they were like, oh, but you know, can we just talk to Charlie and make sure that she doesn't want this? And I was like, she doesn't want to talk to you. And I suddenly realised that they thought maybe I was like manipulating her some sort of walked away. <laughs> That's bad. I mean, there's yeah. so there's so many feelings going on. Were you in all of the the trauma and the and the beauty and the intensity of it? Were you trying still to persuade her, having been let down by the doctors, to go back to the doctors? There was, there was no point that when we went in for that meeting to be told what they'd found they sort of walked us down this sort of path and after about half an hour the doctor said palliative care only and I, I looked to Charlie and I just thought what what, what 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 do you mean you know I thought they would be able to do surgery but they wouldn't mm. do it they said there's a risk there's a really high risk that she would die with surgery but I was thinking well you're just telling me that she's going to die anyway so but you can't make that decision like if she died having had surgery and hadn't tried the alternative route, which she thought would work, how could I live with myself? <laughs> it's easy to look back and go, it didn't work. None of that stuff we did worked. But at the time, you don't know what's going to work and what's not going to work. So you can't make that decision for anybody. They have to make it themselves. But it's mm. so hard. Yeah, it's just... Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. And in the um, one-woman play that you wrote about your twin and about losing your twin, Charlie, the bit that sticks in my mind yeah. is the actual moment of her passing and the sort of, as you said before, there's a tension between all the feelings you're holding that it was so 
sad and yet elements of it were sort of ridiculous in your memory the dress yeah. you were wearing um the cat that came in the room and and I think that's so interesting that people very rarely write about that strange out of body thing that happens at moments of heightened emotion where you want it to be all profound but actually silly things happen at the yeah. same time does that make sense yeah. to you what I'm saying yeah absolutely and I think I think maybe we're so conditioned to watching dramas unfold on the television that we expect everything to be really dramatic in a way that actually life not isn't necessarily dramatic it it's it's enough what it is is enough and I thought that we maybe had one more night um and that I was gonna maybe sleep in the same bed as her the the following night because you know she'd been unconscious for about 14 days and so she hadn't had anything to eat or drink for all of that time and you know she had this hope there's all these books that you know, talk about you know, people touching death and then coming back. And, mm. you know, even though I felt that I didn't believe that that would happen, I I wanted with all my body to, to believe that something like that could happen. And, I mean, she was so loved. The, the women who, who slept either side of her, her friends, you know, she was at home in my house and... um. But I still thought that I would be there when she left, but I I wasn't. It was, you know, three thirty in the morning. Um mm. and I was I was upstairs. Yeah, and I was upstairs and it was like, Oh, I woke up or well, maybe I need you know, I'll go to the toilet, maybe I need the toilet and actually finding out that that was the moment probably that she that she died and it it th- things don't necessarily things don't happen as we expect them to happen because I think we're just conditioned by films and that's why I wanted to write something that was completely real and honest um, mm. and also real and honest about grief because I had no idea what deep grief looked like and how lost you are in that yeah no and I want I do want to talk about that but before we do I wonder if you could just tell me a little bit if it's not too painful I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about the moment you got up to go for a wee and then you went downstairs or your one of the friends who'd been with Charlie called you and what happened just in those moments really that and the reality that you write in the play is just so sort of technicolor but as you say yeah. not Hollywood very real yeah so I yeah, oh, but this it sounds so funny, isn't it? Because I always have this dilemma about <laughs> this sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But actually, I've spoken to people after the show, and they've gone, "We have that um, of like do you flush the toilet?" Because we had this really, really big old water tank in in this house that we were renting, and and you know, I was like, "God, it makes such a noise," um, and you know, it's there's the silence felt very profound, and I didn't want to wake anyone up, so I sat there thinking, "What do I do?" And then I was like, "Oh." stop being such an idiot nobody has these conversations with themselves Emma just flush the toilet it's not an issue so I flush and then I go back to bed and I can hear this water tank whirring and stuff and I'm just lying very still and then I can hear the door downstairs opening and I hear yeah the stiff metal handle being pushed down I I hear the footsteps and I hear the creak of the step and then I start to breathe really fast I'm I'm thinking okay what, what's happening what you know was it <laughs> Is, is it now? Is it now? Is she going now? 
and there's footsteps stop outside my room and then there's a knock on my door and a whisper of my name and I open it and this one of my beautiful friends is standing there with this bright pink pajamas and pink hair and she's like just come 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 so I run down the stairs and then I realize that I'm only wearing a t-shirt and my my knickers and and I was like I don't want to go into her room in just my knickers that feels really wrong and there happened to be some laundry on the windowsill and I throw on this sort of crappy black dress that I got for four quid from from Primark and it put it on back to front and the label sticking out but I'm like no I have to I, I, I don't have time to change it I just need to get in to the room and I open her door and and her her other beautiful friend is is kneeling on the bed next to her and and um she she just looks up at me with these really kind eyes and I think that this is I think that I'm going to be like that Charlie is maybe you know her breathing's changed or something but actually she she looks up at me and just says she's she's gone she's gone and I wasn't expecting to miss it you know I think I say in the show as well I was there for your first breath. I was expecting to be there for your last. Um, but mm. she left and I wasn't there. People say it's it's not something I'm trying not trying to make you feel better with a sort of cheap consolation, but people do say, don't they, that sometimes people wait <laughs> till the person mm. who's been waiting is not in the room or who knows, they but they do say that, yeah, they absolutely do say that. And it might have been the quietness that that she slipped off. I just, I felt, how did I feel? I guess I felt slightly betrayed. <laughs> you know, I just felt like that's not fair. <laughs> um, mm. <laughs> I wanted, you know, I wanted to be there. But, you know, it's hard. It's It's hard to watch somebody that looks like you you know, that is part of your DNA that is, you know, I don't know, that sounds really weird, doesn't it? That's a weird thing to say, but I'm very aware that we, you know, that we're identical and that I'm watching her body deteriorate. And mm. yeah, and sorry, but like, no, you just sit there and hold somebody's hand and feel, I can feel her pulse through her hand because her muscles have wasted so much and and uh, yeah, I just, I just needed it to be gentle. That was the only thing that I could do for her, just to walk that journey with her and, and, and hold her through it and make it as, ah, uh, just the pain as well when you're a young person dying is really horrific. So it was just so hard watching that. And in the play, you write about this being your first experience of deep grief and how yeah. I think we're all unprepared for our first experience of deep grief but I also would bet that the grief of losing a twin is is something apart again perhaps yeah I wonder what it is what it is like what it was like gosh I think that I mean I've spoken to people who've lost for instance they've lost their best friend and they've really felt this that when they came to see the show they really felt it because you lose your sense of what your future was or what you expected to happen you know you always I always expected to be able to go to Spain that her friends were my friends that 
that um, her kids are my kids. They're my kids. They're, you know, <laughs> I'm their second mum. That's that's how it is. And in a way, my whole life has been sort of sculpted about belonging to my sister in a way. You know, I, I had my son when I was quite young and um, I was a single parent and it's very lonely, you know, she was in Spain and I was by myself and I just taught myself to play guitar so that I could play and we could sing together because that's what we that's what we used to do and all of those things don't mean anything anymore like nothing means anything all my life I've sort of planned to to you know I was like I'm gonna go traveling and then I'm gonna find a beautiful place to live and then I'm gonna get Charlie to come there and we're gonna do this together and and suddenly you don't there's no future um there's no vision of a future and so you just move forwards as best you can and I guess the the writing was a little bit of a snowball effect really I just started to write about about us and shared the work with some people and then they sort of just encouraged me to keep going but in a way all I've all I'm doing is using her to move forwards in my life because I'm bringing her with me I'm writing her story still she is still writing my story this show would not exist without her <laughs> so you know I've been using it as a as a way I guess to navigate through grief by just moving one step at a time mm. Yeah. I suppose then the thing that I hear that you're saying is that your relationship still exists and it's still changing perhaps in a way that in that moment at 3.30 in the morning you might not have thought it would. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I think the, I think the other thing is that when, you know, when, when Charlie died, I, I didn't go into this big, I mean, I was shaky but I was like, I'm just carrying all, I'm carrying this. I just need to, you know, you know, you've got suddenly, you've got so much to do. Everything is about organizing what happens next. And her little girl was in the country, you know, you're managing all of these things. So you just go into this high alert, you know, sorting everything out. And it, 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 like the, the grief drips in at different points. And I felt like it was like, um, it's almost like one of those egg timers with the sand in and it's like your brain can't cope with all that sand landing down and going well she's dead so you it just doesn't I didn't process it like that at all it was like a tiny little drop of sand coming down at a time it felt surreal it didn't feel didn't it still doesn't feel real I still think that she's gone to Australia and she's going to be coming back I think that might be the only way my brain can deal with such a huge loss because it doesn't feel real it doesn't feel possible that this has happened and what about the world outside and your grief you've written something which is it's like a a cry really I think when you write about grief like that because you're you're demanding that people pay attention to it and try and understand it but in the normal running of things I'm not sure the world is very good at understanding people's quite visceral sort of cries of grief like that I think people you know my older sister has a lot of experience of dealing with people who've grieved and she said oh you know people give grieving people a year they just do and then it's like a guillotine comes down and they think you should be 
over it, better, moved on, whatever awful form of words. Um, and I wonder with a with a loss that feels impossible to you, how the outside world treated your grief. So it's been seven years. So seven years, two weeks ago. Um, and I think that people were really generous to me. I mean, you get people that are really, like, you know, yeah, you know, it comes up quite a It comes up, so you sort of have to say that my sister died. You know, I don't. it just comes up in very... I remember even going to the florist to get flowers for the funeral, and, and she just went, oh, who died? And I was like, it was my, my identical twin sister. And she went, oh, how did she die? And I was like, oh, my God, I just can't <sighs> believe that you are speaking to me like this. Like, I don't think you understand. Um, but... But mostly, I've had the most loving, beautiful support from everybody. They've been so amazing. And they've just put up with me, actually, because I've been a mess. And I would say that that's one of the things that I sort of wanted to do with the show is is to, yeah, I mentioned sort of like other people. And I'm like, we're not living in the same world as everybody else. Like, I think that when you've had deep deep trauma I think we numb a lot with alcohol or with you know with 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 whatever we can fill ourselves with rather than deal with how we feel and there's a there's a there's a guy that I know that he goes and sits in the pub and he's drinking there because he doesn't want to go home because his wife died you know (laughs) so it makes me really emotional thinking about him but I'm like I get it you know and rather than judging those people and thinking oh that you know that guy's just a bit of an alcoholic He's just in deep grief. And actually, I just I wish we would all have more compassion for people because um, it's really hard. It's just really hard. And as I said, I think people have been lovely. I think probably my time's running out <laughs> with some people still keeping compassionate. But but actually, through the show, I feel like I've been able to say to people, this is how this is how I feel. This is how mm. it is. Mm. And my final question, this podcast is about siblings and you've talked about people who've experienced deep grief or maybe lost their best friend seeing your show or whatever, but have you talked with, shared with or spent time with people who've lost a sibling or even a twin to talk about that particular kind of grief? Because one of the things that this podcast comes back to and comes back to is the idea of your siblings as keepers of our histories. There's nobody else. Best friends are one thing. Sure. But really to know who you really are and where you came from, that requires like the good fortune of a close sibling. And I'm guessing then there's a different texture to the grief of losing a sibling than even a very close best friend, perhaps. Uh, And I wonder whether you've talked to other people who've experienced a loss like yours. Um, I'm. I mean, I'm part of the Lone Twin Network, which is, um, it's been set up for for twins who have lost their twin, um, and so that we have like a, a private Facebook group, and I haven't felt yet able to go and meet people in person because I I just don't know how I I don't know how I will stand up to, to yeah. that. I know it's very deeply emotional for all of us the people express how they feel through that and it's you know the similarities uh yeah for us is what makes it manageable 
knowing that other people mm. know exactly how you feel. Um, so there are people that totally get it out there, which is a relief actually. And, you know, to have that support system and, you know, I've had a lot of um, therapy. It was to do with the show to start with, but it's to do with managing the fact that it was autobiographical and, and the topics of it. And through that, that's really helped that's really helped support me. But I realised that I, you know, I relied on Charlie having the some of the, the memories and I feel the responsibility of holding all those memories by myself and I, f- I feel it quite intensely and I'm scared of forgetting and I think that's why I can't get rid of any of her things because all of them have a memory for me and I don't want to not remember our journey um, because I am that I am the only one holding that now thank you to Emma and thank you too for listening Charlie always said to me don't you dare use my death as a as a burden around your neck to to not live your life she could be really brutal like that with really really harsh <laughs> um, in a way I guess by being brave really it was take, took a lot of bravery actually to make work I have such respect for people that put their work out there it's it's you know you're open to criticism it's really hard but to be brave and to take risks and to you know to be seen that's what I'm trying to do really it because I think she would go you know I think she'll go good <laughs> you know take those opportunities because she didn't put, put her work out there she she wrote beautiful songs and stuff and we were just always afraid and we were always meant to perform together and we were always meant to do like, you know, singers, songwriters night. I think we did one and we were just, we, we just got too nervous singing with, you know, it was just silly, really. Um, and I think in a way it was because we were, we felt like the same being. So it was like, yeah. you know, we always wanted somebody else to join us because then we we're like, oh, now we've got them and it's us <laughs> and them. <laughs> Whereas when, when, when we were on stage together, it's like, oh, it's just us, you know? Uh, yeah anyway to see some really sweet pictures of emma and charlie when they were younger and to find out more about the podcast do head to relativelypodcast.com thank you too to tanita tickerham who let us use this amazing song sound design is by nick carter at nick sonics and digital production by charlotte griffiths coming up on relatively helen thorne one half of the scummy mummies duo and her composer brother john she'll be talking about marathon running about body positivity and about her book get divorced be happy if you're enjoying relatively do please rate review and subscribe or even better why don't you send an episode you've particularly enjoyed to your brother or your sister there's a good tradition of love and hate staying by the fireside there's a good Tradition of love and hate Stand by the fireside Another rain may fall Your father's calling you You still feel safe inside Only your ma's too proud Your brother's ignoring you You still feel safe inside Oh, was it solo? Was it yesterday? Was it true for you? Cause while all the rest have taken time It's didn't Thank you. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.